Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails today. What do you say? What do you say? This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist, and I am also a professor. This email is from patron Jed. Patron Jed says, I've had trouble sleeping for years, particularly during times of heightened stress or other intense emotions. For me, at least on the surface, it's less the fear of death than the fear I've left something undone. Just chiming in here, Patron Dead is referring to an episode in which I, I did an episode on fear of death and fear of sleep, and it was more of an episode on fear of death. I think I called the episode fear of sleep, um, but I should have just called it fear of death. Um, the talk just kind of got away with me and I ended up sort of getting off topic. But anyway, so he's, He's saying that uh, when it, it's hard for him to sleep at night because he has a fear that he's left something undone. He says, I have this pervasive fear that I haven't paid enough attention, that something vital has slipped by. If something is really bothering me, I can end up staying up all night thinking of how to do something about it. Maybe that does fit into death anxiety in a roundabout way in that it fits under the larger heading, wasting my life or not having done enough with my time. I found watching TV programs, which are just interesting enough to hold my attention, but not interesting enough to get me absorbed into the, uh, get absorbed into it. This works well. World War II in color, which is a TV show on Netflix was my lullaby for the, for at least a month. I was out cold 15 minutes into an episode. End of email. Yeah. Yes. This is not death anxiety. This is just plain old anxiety, anxiety. Your worry is intrusive. You know, you're worrying about stuff that's undone and, and that you have missed something that if you, if you don't, if you don't remain galvanized on particular thoughts in your mind, you're worried that you're going to miss something or forget something or forget to do something. And then, um, so your brain concentrates on that and then it's hard to fall asleep. And, this is pretty classic. I, I have a lot of clients who tell me about this. And I think in our culture, we just don't have enough solutions out there because most people will go to sleep aids, medications. But really what you need is um, some kind of practice. We call it mindfulness, call it cognitive therapy, call it something else. But I found that the following thing, things work. It sounds like you have found a solution. Uh, basically, what I say to people is this. I say, in order for your brain to fall asleep, your, there's, think, of, think of your brain in the middle of your brain as this conductor. Now, of course, this doesn't actually exist. But think about in the center of your brain, there's this control room. And it's reading a bunch of instruments. But it can't see out. It's sort of deep in your brain. And doesn't have access to the outside world. It just, it's just trying to pick up on clues. And so in order, and, and at a certain point in the day, circadian rhythm wise, the, this conductor says, okay, it, I think it's time to fall asleep. I'm not sure. I don't know what time it is. Cause again, this, this conductor doesn't know what's really happening. It's just looking for clues. And so it's saying, okay, a lot of time has passed. I think it might actually be time for sleep. Our melatonin levels are rising, so that usually indicates it's time for sleep. 
Now, in a healthy situation or a sleep, a pro sleep situation, the conductor will see the following things. The conductor will say, oh, I'm getting data from the sight uh, sensor that says we're not, we don't see anything. It's dark. Okay, so that, that tells us that we might be ready for sleep. Let's look for some other clues. I'm getting other readings here that say we're laying down. Okay, that's, a, that's something. I'm getting another reading here that they're not, they're not uh, moving. They're just being very still. Okay. They're under some blankets. Okay. They are not thinking about anything. There's nothing that they are trying to do with their, with their co- conscious mind. They're just sort of drifting. You know, their, their brain is daydreaming or just, be, or it's blank. Okay, that's another clue. There, I'm getting also data that tells me that there's not a lot of noise, or at least n- nothing strange. It's either white noise or no noise. Okay, that's another data. So, the and so the conductor is looking for all these, you know, data points, and then it says, "Okay, time to initiate the sleep process." And then the conductor says, "Initiate sleep process," and then you fall asleep. Well, if the conductor is getting data that con- that is mixed messages, it says, "Okay." He's, he's lying down, he's in bed, he's under the blankets, it's dark, but he is intensely thinking about something. He is extremely, he's spending a lot of mental energy working on a problem. And the, and the conductor then says, okay, do not initiate sleep process because I don't want to interrupt his, his thought process because it's, he's, he's clearly doing something still. And I, I need to stay awake for that. The brain, in essence, kind of works that way. And our brain knows, our body knows when it's time. And, and the only way it knows when it's time is when we give it enough clues. And one of the things that you can do is to make your mind as blank as possible. People will count sheep, right? I cannot imagine counting sheep. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> but that's the point. It's like you're counting sheep jumping over a fence. It doesn't, it, it doesn't require any much mental, mental energy to imagine that. Other things that you can do that I, that I recommend that I found success with with people is you, your head hits the pillow. There's this phenomenon that happens. That the best I can hypothesize is that your head hits the pillow and you no longer have anything to distract you. And so all of a sudden, all these kind of latent worries pop into your head <laughs> and, and you can't distract yourself with the internet or people or vision or, you know, whatever. And so it's, your brain can only focus on these, on these intrusive uh, anxieties. And so what I tell people to do is turn on the light, get up and uh, put a pad and pencil, a, a literal pad and pencil. Don't don't use your phone because that has that that has. Um, well, just just get a pad and pencil. And when your head hits the pillow, and an anxiety runs past your mind, or something that you think you need to be thinking about, turn on the light, get up, you know, sit up, get the pad and pencil, and write it down. And by doing this, you're saying this is something I'm going to worry about tomorrow for sure. I'm I'm definitely going to tackle this tomorrow but I'm not going to think about it right now. Turn off the light, lay back down. Another thought crosses your mind, a new thought. 
And then you say, get up, write it down on the pad and paper, put it by the side of the bed and say, I'm definitely going to worry about this tomorrow, but I'm not going to worry about it right now. If you have a repeat thought, you say, I've already written it down on the piece of paper. I don't need to mull this over right now. It's on the pad and paper. When I wake up, it'll be the first thing I see. I'll worry about it then. I'm not going to worry about it now. When I've done this with people who have this sort of thing that Jed is talking about, I find that it really works because the the problem that people run into when their head hits the pillow and they start mulling over all these uh, things that they are sort of worrying about is that part of the worry is if I don't stop thinking about it, I'm going to forget and then I'll forget to do something about it. Whereas if you just get up and write it down, then that part of your brain can rest and say, okay, well, okay, I've written it down. We'll definitely hit on that tomorrow. I don't need to keep cycling this thought through my brain in order to keep it fresh. So the other thing that this does is the next day uh, when you wake up, you'll look at this pad and paper and you'll think, these are stupid things. (laughs) Almost always people will look at what they were worrying about late last night and say, uh, that's dumb. Like I, I have a whole different perspective about these three thoughts. It's like so dumb to be worrying about that right now. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to solve world hunger. And, you know, the fact that the Kardashians are famous is not my problem. And so, because, so you, you see just how unrealistic your worries are when it's late at night. And so the next time you have that same worry, your head hits the pillow you can know that, oh, uh, I'm pretty sure later on I'm going to think this is a little silly. So actually, I don't even need to think about that anymore. I find that the writing down thing, you only have to do it for a few nights before you've you've broken yourself of the habit of worrying about these things late at night. Um, another thing that I recommend people do is just laugh at yourself. This is what I do. Because <laughs> when my head hits the pillow, I will think about some ridiculous stuff. Just just ridiculous things that are concerning to me. And I laugh at myself now. I I will audibly chuckle and say, that is hilarious, Kirk, that you are thinking about that right now. What a horrible thing to think about as you're falling asleep. Like, that's ridiculous. Stop thinking about that. (laughs) And it works because it pulls me out of the anxiety and of the um, terror, literally. And so there's that. Also, if you learn mindfulness techniques of concentrating on something very calming or just practicing how to make your mind blank, that that will help too. The, the larger point here is that if you have trouble falling asleep at night and you find yourself mulling over a bunch of thoughts, there are extremely easy and effective techniques that can be used. And the things that I just suggested didn't take me long to suggest, right? And when I work with people on this, it works pretty quickly. And I just find that it's just so strange that in our culture, there's not this notion that there are solutions to this. Of course, there are people who absolutely know these solutions, but people are much more likely to go to the drugstore and get Tylenol PM or Robitussin or or go to their doctor and get... Um, one of the sleep medications and, and think that that's a good idea. Now it can be a very good idea and I'm not anti sleep meds, but the problem with sleep meds is if you take them every night, 
eventually you will not be able to fall asleep unless you take those take that medication, or at least your risk of that goes up pretty pretty significantly. So then when you finally face your actual problem, which is the sort of thoughts that run around in your head, you have this double problem in that your your body now needs the drug to fall asleep. That conductor on the inside of your brain looks for that compound to come by on a sensor to realize, oh, it must be time for sleep now. And if it doesn't see that chemical pass by, then the conductor says, well, we haven't seen the the chemical yet, so it must not be time for sleep. So it, now, occasionally using a sleep aid or using a sleep aid every day in a pinch is totally fine, and I will absolutely support my clients when they do that. But it is not a long-term solution. <laughs> and barring that, if none of these things work and it's just an ongoing issue, you should definitely talk to a sleep specialist. There are sleep specialists that can really uh, hone in on the specifics of your behavior and your biology and your diet and your exercise and your your thyroid and your hormones and your psychiatry and your home stress and your marital stress. And they can really do a full assessment to zero in on things that you can do to change your sleep pattern. But the larger thing that I'll say here is if you're getting bad sleep, then do something about it because everything starts falling, falling apart. If you don't get sleep at night, your cravings for bad food goes up, your irritability goes up, your ability to concentrate goes down, your ability to motivate to exercise goes down, your parenting skills suffer, your relationship skills suffer, your self-esteem suffers, depression goes up, anxiety goes up, ADHD symptoms go up. Not in everybody, of course, but there's just so many ill effects to being sleep-deprived. And I, and statistically and anecdotally, I find that nearly everyone is sleep deprived (laughs) and it's because Americans work too hard, frankly, and need to know when to draw limits with their employers and say, I can't work this much because what that means is I have to, because I, you know, I work this much at the job and I have to commute home and then I have to take care of the kids and then I have to do chores and then I still have a few things I got to take care of that are just like, I just have to do like, you know, make lunch for the kids the night before, or I don't know, interact with my children. And that pushes bedtime back by a couple hours. And then I'm only getting like four hours of sleep a night. Cause I got to wake up at six and get ready and then commute to work. And the, you can't cut back on parenting. You can't cut back on commuting. Cause that's just how it is. I mean, you could try, and work from home. And I fully recommend that you advocate for that if that's possible. But often what I find with people is the one thing you can actually uh, reduce is telling your boss to screw off and say, I can only work so much during the week. And sometimes what this means is working 40 hours a week (laughs) or 45 hours a week. Because a lot of people are working like 50, 55, 60 plus, particularly when you think about doing emails at home, right? And so I recommend that people do that. And if we all do it, then, you know, productivity may suffer. 
but at the very least, we'll all be a lot happier. Maybe GDP won't be as robust or something, but but our well-being will definitely be improved. And research shows that when we work less and get more sleep, we actually are more productive, if not the same level of productivity when we're at work. So there's that issue. But anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this email is from listener Natasha. Listener Natasha says, Hi, Dr. Kirk. I just started classes at a local state university, and my, and my psychology professor today said that cognitive psychology was his area of interest. He also said that humanistic psychology was no longer the focus of many in the field. It surprised me since your podcast seems to lean in a more humanistic psychoanalytic direction, and I was even a little annoyed at him because it seemed like such a narrow thing to say. Do you have any thoughts on this, Kirk? End of email. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts. This sort of thing annoys me greatly. It's one thing for someone to say they don't like humanistic psychology. It's one thing to say that they don't like psychodynamic or interpersonal therapies. It's another thing to, as a professor to claim that humanistic psychology is extremely, you know, that it's on its, it's, it's, a, it's a declining area or something. And, and I hear this all the time. Like in my world as a marriage and family therapist, there are people, trainees, students, supervisees, colleagues will come to me and say, so my supervisor told me that marriage and family therapy is a dying profession. Is that true? And it, I think it's all just motivated elitism or just they want that to be true because they feel like they're in competition with marriage and family therapy or something. Statistically speaking, marriage and family therapy is on the rise. When you look at the amount of people who are employed as marriage and family therapists, when you look at the amount of jobs that are available, marriage and family therapy is increasing on the rise, not decreasing. Uh, And with uh, this cognitive psychology person, uh, their claims about humanistic psychology is is silly. Um, let's look at actual data. There's a massive study that I often go to. The study is so massive, it's an entire book. It's not just an article. I took up an entire book. By Orlinsky and Ronstad, who are famous therapist researchers. It's a book called How Therapists Develop. How Therapists Develop. They They surveyed something like thousands of therapists around the globe, not just the United States, but Norway, Germany, South Korea, uh, uh, Israel, um, just all over the globe, like in 50 different countries or something. And here are the data. So, but if we uh, narrow ourselves to, so this is in 2005, so take that with, uh, so think about that. But I, I've seen other statistics that say that these percentages are very close to the way they are right now. So the amount of people who identify in the United States as being analytic dynamic, so psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, interpersonal object relations is 49%. So 40, so P and people could, uh, check off more than one. So 49% of the therapists that they 
studied in the United States, and this includes psychologists, marriage and family therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, all the, all the psychotherapist professions. Almost 50% identified as analytic dynamic. 24% identified as behavioral, as using behavioral. 40% said cognitive. 21% said cognitive behavioral. 33% said humanistic. 29% said systemic. 15% said other. And um, 10% said that none of these were salient. And 54% said that more than one was salient. So in other words, 54% are indicating that they're integrated like me because I would check all of them. I like all these. I like analytic. I like behavioral. I like cognitive. I like humanistic. I like systemic. So I would have been one of those. Those. So most people consider them st- in the United States to be integrated. But the most popular one is dynamic. And the second popular one is cognitive. And the third popular one is humanistic. So the notion that humanistic psychology is no longer the focus for many in our field. I mean, I suppose, you know, that statement could be correct depending on what he means by that. But I, I, I suspect that he just doesn't like humanistic psychology. Cognitive, it wouldn't surprise me that someone who called themselves a cognitive psychologist, it wouldn't surprise me that they were hostile to dynamic therapies, dynamic theory, and humanistic psychology. So uh, that just, it just uh, bothers me because I'm appreciative of all the theories because all the theories have merit in not only my own personal life when I look at me and the people around me, but also when I look at my clients and try to help them. Cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, family systems, dynamic theories, interpersonal, the collaborative theory, solution focus, narrative, biological ideas about how things work, multicultural, social constructionism, hermeneutics. Um, what am I leaving out? <laughs> All the humanistic, gestalt, ex- existential, and the list goes on and on. All those theories are totally valid, have a ton of wisdom, have a ton of literature in it that is extremely convincing to me and evidence-based every single, whenever people say evidence-based, they often think it's cognitive behavioral psychodynamic therapy is evidence-based therapy. People have studied psychodynamic therapy and found that it is empirically, uh, it, it has empirical evidence that it is effective in terms of helping people have positive outcomes in therapy in relation to other forms of therapy, either at par with or even better, depending on the issue. And as I always say, it's not the theory, it's tailoring the theory to the client, tailoring the therapy to the client, which means that you have to know all the theories and then know when to use which combination of which theories for a particular client for their particular present, uh, you know, presenting problems for their, for the stage of therapy, for their age, for their symptoms, for their culture, you, you have to tailor uh, the treatment to them. That is uh, the John Norcross way. And it's my way. All right, let's go to a break and then we will read some more emails. Okay. We're back. 
If you haven't become a patron of the pod- podcast yet, please do so now by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. When, when you become a patron, that's the way we know that you truly care about this podcast and that you truly get value out of it. And as a patron, you get access to all of our deep dives. We have hundreds of premium episodes that are only available to patrons of the podcast. So become a patron now. That's, that's, um, if you're going to do one thing for us, do that because that's the coolest thing. Also, other things you can do is tell a friend or a colleague about us or you can rate us on iTunes. Uh, if you become a, a $20 patron, you get a mug. We have, a, we have some new mugs. Also, you can join the Facebook fan group, which is led by famous patron Lyndon. And we have a number of people having some interesting conversations over there. Also, you can join our Instagram. I occasionally will post pictures on Instagram. I don't use Twitter. I don't know why. I just don't get it. But again, if you can, become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. All right, let's go on to another email. This email is from patron Rachel. She says, as a young kid, my mother had always told my family and her peers that I was exceptionally smart. She would sign me up for gifted programs. I remember struggling in these programs. But since my mother had openly labeled me as intelligent and gifted, I believed I was a lot smarter than my peers. I went to some pretty terrible public schools, and I would get an A in class just for being obedient. By the end of high school, I started to notice that I may not be as smart as my mom was telling me. I'm 25 now, and I'm taking classes in community college. My goal is to begin my BA in psychology next year. But I'm haunted by this thought that I might not be cut out for my dream career because of my lack of intelligence. There are times when I speak with my husband who is extremely smart, and I fear we are not on the same level of intelligence. At times, he will ask my opinion about a particular subject, and I stumble over my words, and I don't respond with anything valuable. And at other times, I don't know what he is talking about at all. Not only do I feel stupid, but I also feel depressed and confused about how smart I truly am. I also feel hurt that I did not meet meet up to my mother's perception of my intelligence, and at, and at the same time, I feel upset that she misguided me in my early years. So I ask if you have ever come across situations like mine, where a child is praised for being smart for most of their childhood, and then they find out in adulthood that they are not above average at all. If so, is there a way of acceptance so I do not have these feelings toward my mother? Very interesting email, patron Rachel. Uh, I could talk a lot about this, but I'm just going to summarize my reaction to this. There's a lot of different areas that I could touch on. The first one I'll say is, yes, I have seen this before. When you have either super insecure parents or narcissistic parents, you will see this sort of thing. So if you're super insecure and or you were abused as a child, you might grow up as a parent to, because of defense mechanisms, you tend to see yourself as all bad and other people as all good. And so one of the thing, one of the ways that can manifest is a parent who sees their child as all good, which, which could manifest as being all intelligent. And some parents will utilize defense mechanisms because of their own internal strife that manifests in them you know, falsely labeling their child as gifted, even though they're not. The more likely answer, though, is that the mother was narcissistic in that 
She needed to be able to brag to people. Children are an extension of their parents, right? And so if your child is smart, then you're then you're smart. And if your child is not smart, then you're not smart. And so this is why people have bumper stickers that say, my child is an honor student and that kind of thing. It's because parents sometimes gain value in themselves as human beings when their child achieves things. And one way to falsely or quickly get that sense of self-esteem if you're narcissistic is to just label your child as gifted, put them in gifted programs and, and brag about them to other people. And this is, this is sometimes the case. It could also be, there's a, there's also a chance that your mom just really wanted to you to believe in yourself or something and thought that if you were in gifted programs and you were told you were intelligent, that you would rise to the occasion. Uh, that's another possibility too. So yeah, I've seen this before and yeah, it can be destructive because children grow up and realize maybe my parents were lying to me and that can be really hurtful, you know? So, and it sounds like that's how it feels to you. It sounds like it doesn't feel like, oh, my mom was just trying to be nice to you. It, it feels like you're like your mother's been lying to you about Santa Claus this whole time or something. It's like suddenly you get to a certain age and you go like, Oh my God, my mom was wrong. And she was lying to me this whole time. And now I'm suffering because of it. You know, also I'm not totally convinced that you aren't above average intelligence. You, you haven't said anything in this email that has really, in, you know, convinced me that you're not above average intelligence. Uh, you're basing this on just a few different data points that it's, it's hard to know. Um, if you're really curious about your IQ, take an IQ test that you can buy them, uh, you know, at the bookstore, they're self-administered IQ tests. They're not official IQ tests, but you know, they, they'll give you a good approximation of your IQ or, you know, put down the money and hire a psychologist to actually test you. These, these tests can take a couple hours, you know, one to four hours or something. And at the end of that, you'll get a, you'll get a very official uh, number that, uh, you know, can be standardized against uh, everyone else that is taking that test, which is a lot of people. So if you're really curious about your intelligence, just look that up. Also, it, it seems that your partner, uh, you're saying that your partner is really smart, but it also kind of sounds like your partner might be putting you down. You're not saying that explicitly, but there's a chance that your dynamic with your partner is such that you you're made to feel st- he's making you feel stupid or he, not on purpose or maybe on purpose. I don't know, but your interactions with him, all I could say is that your interactions with him, you walk away feeling not intelligent. And to me that the more likely, you know, there's a small chance that you're just recognizing reality in that instance, but it's probably more likely at the way in which the two of you debate it results in you emotionally feeling like you're not smart or that you don't have good ideas or stuff, something like that. So that's another thing to think about. Also, another thing is that intelligence is a very squishy thing and it's a cultural thing. We tend to label certain things as, as quote unquote, you know, smart. For example, when, when someone can talk intelligently about philosophy, you know, Nietzsche and Sartre and stuff, People will point to that person, but that is a smart dude. That's a smart person. Or if someone has a bunch of degrees, like someone has three doctorate degrees, it's like, whoa, that person is so smart. But that's not supported by the by the data. There are people 
who dropped out of elementary school and know nothing about philosophy who have an IQ off the charts. And the reverse is true as well. You can have someone who has all the trappings of, a, of an intelligent person. They have a lot of books. They dress up in a cardigan. They you know, have a bunch of degrees on their wall. They speak with a particular accent. And yet they have a below average IQ. And this happens all the time. So I wonder if you're looking to these things to indicate that you're intelligent when in reality, that's not necessarily what it is. Plus, even if you did have a quote-unquote average intelligence, average IQ, the research shows that there are actually many different kinds of cognitive abilities that we could call intelligence. We tend to privilege certain kinds of cognitive abilities and call that intelligent. It has to do with math ability, verbal ability, the speed at which your brain works, and the ability for you to remember things. These are the four main areas that we tend to, uh, and and really the main areas is math and verbal. So if you're good at if you, if you're good at math and nothing else you will tend to have a very high IQ score. But math is one particular skill, right? And, you know, of course, math, the, the ability in math kind of translates to other areas and other, other abilities. But really, intelligence, I could go, I think I've done a whole episode on intelligence, but just to let you know, like our culture and uh, it sees intelligence one way and psychology sees intelligence in a different way, but there's some Venn diagram overlap there. But the history of the construct of intelligence is based on our government or the militaries, um, what they want to see in their people. So they want, to, they want to have good workers, right? And so things that we should call intelligence are not called intelligence. Uh, things like the ability to play music or the ability to understand music. That has nothing to do with the capitalistic machine, and so therefore we don't we don't privilege your aptitude to music. Other things like the ability to move, your ability to dance or interpret movements, or your your the the ability for you to know what your body is doing. You know, working at IBM in the '60s had nothing to do with that, or at least they didn't think it did, and so therefore they didn't they didn't test for that. What they did test for was math and verbal and memory and brain speed, uh, creativity in general, the ability to be emp- empathetic. To me, I privilege empathy over anything else. If I met someone on the street and they asked me, "Can I be your friend and hang out with you?" And I had the ability to scan all their different intelligences. <laughs> Empathy would be the most important thing. Compassion, right? I wouldn't care how good their math skills were. Or, or frankly, if I was to hire someone <laughs> at whatever job I had, um, as long as it wasn't a math teacher or something, you know, I, empathy and compassion are cognitive abilities, brain abilities that some people have more than others. The ability to socialize, social skills, the ability to read other people. These are, these are aptitudes. These are abilities that people can be measured on. But we don't include that in quote-unquote intelligence, even though it is absolutely a measure of your brain's ability to do something. It just isn't what the capitalist system cares about. And so that's just another thing to think about is uh, that intelligence in reality 
takes a number of different forms. Also, you don't have to be above average intelligence to enter the field of psychology, I'm here to tell you. Believe me, I've taught thousands of students, and I'm here to tell you that intelligence can help, but it's not the main factor. The main factor is this. Are you open to learning? Are you open to learning from your instructors? Are you curious? And here's the important one. Are you willing to be wrong? Are you willing to be to be told you're wrong? And at that point, will you try to learn from your mistake? If the answer to that question is yes, then that's all the intelligence you need. You know, for example, say a woman has an IQ of 160, which is super high, like genius level, kind of mental level kind of stuff. Let, let's say you take a woman with mental level intelligence, but she's not curious, she isn't open to learning from her instructors, and she isn't willing to be told that she's wrong. Then if, if that woman entered my program, I would try to kick her out of my program. <laughs> I would try to get rid of her because, or she would drop out because she would soon realize that she's not doing well. So you're you know, capitalistic notion of intelligence or your cultural notion of, of what is typically privileged as intelligent, like the ability to debate is not a prerequisite to enter my field. The prerequisite to enter my, to enter my field is maturity is the ability to be humble is the ability to listen is the capacity for compassion is the ability to communicate effectively. And from your email, I can tell you that you communicate very effectively. So do not worry about that. And I try to disabuse people of this notion right away in my program, right from day one. I'll tell them that being smart does not make you a good therapist. Being a good student doesn't make you a good therapist. What makes you a good therapist is being a good therapist, which is being open, being a good listener, having compassion, being humble, being able to say you're wrong, being able to put your own biases aside, being able to critically look at yourself, having self-awareness, being interested in self-awareness. These are the things that make you a good therapist, not intelligence. So just take heed of that. But really, your main question was, you asked if there was a way that you could accept your mother after you realized that she had uh, tricked you as a child into thinking that you were uh, super smart. And this is a very tough question. The journey that we go on with our parents, you're just starting that, you're 25. And the journey that we go on with our parents when we become adults is very complex. And it's a super important and super meaningful journey. It's what we call in the business as family of origin work. In fact, the very first class that we uh, uh, mandate that all students take before they can move forward in the program is the family of origin class in which we learn about family of origin theories and we also learn about systems theories, but we also have the students investigate their own family of origins themselves. And it can be very grueling, emotionally speaking. And there's a lot of emotions that happen in that class. And it, and that's a, that's a lifetime thing. You know, people take that course and there's, and that just is the beginning of that process for them. So for you, uh, patron, Rachel, you're, you're right at the beginning of that journey. 
You know, what does it mean that your mom did this? Why did she do it? Did she really do it? What does she have to say about it? Can she admit that she did something wrong? Did she have some other reason? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you are really intelligent. Maybe you're underestimating yourself. You know, this is a very large topic. What other kinds of things, what other issues do you have with your mom? I'm sure this isn't the only issue at hand. Um, I did a whole episode about family of origin work. I'm fairly positive within the last year. So if you want, you can check that out. Oh, also, by the way, a listener asked me, patron asked me about, you know, where's your episode on this topic? And I realized that it's hard to find the titles of the episodes because they're, so I made a list of every single episode on the website, the psychology in Seattle website. There's a page there that has every single episode listed out. So it's easier to search for, you know, anyway, but yeah, patron Rachel, um, if you haven't listened to that family of origin episode, go for it. It's, uh, it's a, you know, it's a journey that you go on with yourself, with your family of origin, with your mom, your relationship with your mom is going to evolve over time. And it, and it depends on what you want, right? Do you want to be closer to her? Do you not? Do you have some issues you want to work out with her? Do you want to get angry at her and tell her that you're hurt and angry that she falsely pumped up your ego and now you're kind of suffering for it? You know, it's, it's up to you, but it, it takes a long time and it's, it's really complex. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, here's an email from listener Leah. Listener Leah says, I have been attending a reading group, a reading group. I have been attending a reading group as part of the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies here in Australia. The person running the group recently commented about the language of patient versus client. They said, I prefer to say the word patient rather than client because lawyers have clients and prostitutes have clients, whereas we have patients. The person said they liked to they liked the word patient better because in Latin it means patient means one who suffers. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on this distinction between the word client and the word patient. One of the members of the reading group also brought up the concept of power in therapy and whether the term patient increases the power imbalance that is already present between therapist and, and client. Um, yes, very interesting email. I thought I'd heard it all, but I've never heard anyone say that before. It's comically stupid in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, now at, at the onset, I say, uh, you can use the word patient or client. It doesn't matter. It, uh, it, it could matter potentially. I mean, language is powerful, but it's not that big of a deal <laughs> is the thing. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I interchange the two words. I, I just I just use them both. I tend to use the word client more just because, I don't know, it just feels better to me. But, but I'll use the word patient. That's fine. And as a client or patient myself, I'll label myself with my own therapist as a patient or a client. And there's a ton of literature on this and, a, and there's been a lot of thoughts about it. And this debate has been going on for decades. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, but for one person, again, an, uh, 
the the person running the group. So I don't know what that means. Is that a person who's in a is that person at a, in a position of authority? Because if if they're not, if they're just sort of like running the group, but they're not really an authority, then sure, they can say whatever they want. But if you're an instructor or you're in a position of power and you're saying stupid stuff like this, like, I I just, I don't know. (laughs) Like, it's just so dumb. Because basically what this person is saying, I mean, I just love this. I prefer the word patient rather than client because lawyers have clients and prostitutes have clients. So let's just look at that sentence for a second. So basically, the, the reason why this person likes the word patient isn't because they like the word patient, but they hate the word client. And the reason why they hate the word client is because lawyers have clients, and I don't want to be associated with lawyers, and prostitutes have clients, and God damn it, I'm not going to be associated with prostitutes. I mean, it's so dumb. Like, even if you did... Ha- you know, even if there was a meaningful connection between our profession and prostitutes, what's wrong with being a sex worker? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, like, and what, particularly what's wrong with being a lawyer? I mean, come on. So, you know, the, the reverse could be said as well, right? You could say, well, I prefer the word client rather than patient because, because psychiatrists have patients and I have clients, you know, like it, it just depends on your, on your, tone of voice, right? (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's just, God, I mean, again, if the person is just a a peer and they're just spouting their opinion, totally fine with that. You can spout your own opinion. But if you're running the group, as you're saying in this email, you're in a position of power and you're going to stay, you're going to say stupid stuff like that. I don't know what to say about that. Um, Also, this person said they like the word patient better because in Latin, patient means one who suffers. One who suffers. Uh, these kinds of arguments I find to be also just so aggravating to me because if you look up Latin of a lot of our words, it, it, it's kind of strange. And so if we went by a 2,000-year-old interpretation or root of a word and that was the basis for all of our language we would be talking in a very strange way today. <laughs> many words would have different meanings. Many words would be added to our language. Many words would be subtracted. We're, we have Latin roots to our... Now this, now, this one actually just happens to coincide, you know, patient, one who suffers. Okay, fine. But th- whenever anyone says, the Latin meaning of this word means blah, 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 which which I find to be just so interesting. I'm like... You know, every word has a previous, uh, every word comes from something, (laughs) you know, and it's not amazing that a word comes from something, you know, there's, every word has an origin and, you know, the word crap has an origin. The word fuck has an origin. It doesn't, it doesn't elevate that word at all. So I hope people know what I'm talking about when I'm saying this, (laughs) because I'm just, Spouting, but anyway, yeah. So, listener Leah, uh, this person in your who's running a group annoys me, as you can tell. Um, th- again, there's a huge debate that's been going on for decades around the word patient and client. Over time, in in the field of psychotherapy, most of us decided that the word client was better, mostly because the word patient implies someone who is ill 
someone who is incapable. Now, of course, that's not true necessarily, right? But when you hear the word client, it it implies more of you know more of a lawyer client relationship where the client is hiring the lawyer for a service, whereas a a patient is usually associated with the medical field, which again is a whole other issue here is that a lot of people try to associate the field of psychotherapy to medicine because medicine is is a considered a legit science and psychotherapy sometimes suffers from being a soft science and people want to make it a hard science like medicine and so they they that's another reason why people might want to use the word patient but anyway when when you when you are when you have cancer and you go to your doctor you are a patient you have cancer you have something wrong with your body you need help and you know there's there's something wrong with you if you have the flu and you go to the hospital because you're dehydrated you're a patient right you're not a you're not a client they call you a patient because you're the one who suffers and and you need treatment there's something wrong with you if you go to your psychotherapist and you're a patient then there's this implication that there's something wrong with you and for some people they're totally fine with that and for other people that feels demeaning it feels negative it it feels like it's not honoring the client's strengths so a lot of, so then those people prefer the word client because it's less demeaning it's it's less um it, it client implies that they're it, some people actually prefer other words incidentally they prefer consumer there was a a, a movement i think in solution solution focused or um solution oriented therapy in which they preferred the word consumer. Other people don't call themselves therapists. They call themselves coaches. Like I think Bowenian people call themselves coaches. And then now in modern times, there's an actual profession called coaching, which is separate from psychotherapy. But, but anyway, there's, there's various different words that have been thrown around. And I think all of them are fine. Any word you want to use is fine as long as you understand the implications of that word and you're okay with that. And as long as you also know that when you use that word with your clients or with your patients or with the public, that it each word has its own different connotation. But neither word is bad and neither word is good. Neither word is better than the other word. Uh, it all just depends on the context. It's all about language, right? We're ta- I mean, you're in Australia, so God knows what your culture says about those two words, but in the United States, so I'm, I'm speaking as a Seattle person in terms of my own cultural understanding. Maybe in Australia, the word client is this really horrible, horrible word. You know, I don't know. At, at this point would be the point where I would try to emulate an Australian accent, but I won't. Uh, maybe I'll do a good Crocodile Dundee, you know, just to be really offensive to Australian people. We have a lot of Australian listeners, by the way. That's one of the surprising things about this podcast. When I first started this podcast nine years ago, I would not have thought, I'm going to have a shit ton of people in Australia listening to this podcast. Um, but there are. There's a, there's, a, there's a robust field of psychotherapy that is interested in my stupid voice in Australia. So let me do a good crocodile Dundee here. Oi, that, you know, that's no client. That That's terrible. This is a client. Remember when 
Crocodile Dundee said, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Um, boy, that was, you know, that's 15 seconds you'll never get back <laughs> in your life. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the word client or patient, the word client, no, I can't do Australian. Why even try, Kirk? Why even try? Uh, the word patient and the word client is, like I said, you just know the context and know why and, and have a justification. And both are right and both are wrong. And everything's cool, people. But to say that you're not going to use the word client because lawyers have clients and prostitutes have clients is ridiculous. Let me look up the Latin uh, you know, origin of the word client or the whatever language that comes from. Yeah, it comes from Latin. It literally meant to hear or obey or to heed. And it, it, it's the word that they used under patronage. So you had patrons and you had clients. And the patron was someone who protected the clients. I think it's sort of like when mobsters in The Godfather say, I will protect you if you give me money. Wouldn't it be terrible if something happened to you? But that comes from an old Italian system from what I understand, so don't shoot me if I'm wrong here, but an old system in which powerful people and families would protect other people as long as they uh, were patrons of them. Or whereas the client, the the patron, I don't know. It comes from that system. So I guess if you're, so if you're strictly going by Latin, then patient is probably a better word. <laughs> so, because the client system doesn't really fit the psychotherapy system. It fits the lawyer system, I suppose, but not the psychotherapy system. But again, 2,000 years later, we have drastically different meanings of words, right? And so when you say the word client to someone, you say, I'm a therapist and I have a client. They don't think about that old Roman Empire system, right? (laughs) So, uh, yeah. I mean, let me look up another word and just see if there's some word that it's like, if if we're we're going off the Latin definition, then we're truly lost. Let me look up another word. Quick Google search here. So the word prestigious, right? Prestigious. It it comes from the Latin word prestigie, meaning juggler's tricks. So, uh, you know, the, the leader of your group, if they ever use the word prestigious, they should say, or if anyone ever uses the word prestigious, they would say, I prefer to use the word prestigious in its original Latin term, which is to mean juggler's tricks. <laughs> but, you know, over time, the word prestigious slowly becomes something else, right? Also, what occurs to me right now is just the narcissism involved in someone saying something like that. Because most psychotherapists, most clinicians in our field use the word client. And so the leader of this group is saying that all of those people who are using the word client, that they're completely stupid for using that word client. That person is saying 95% of our industry 
is doing something ridiculous and and very strange by using the word client because prostitutes use the word clients. First off, do prostitutes, do sex workers use the word client? I, I, I didn't know that, honestly. Um, it seems like they would have some other word for it. You know, I don't know. But, but anyway, the point is, is that this group leader has the, the narcissism to just declare that 95% of our industry is doing something wrong by using the word client. I just, I don't understand people like this. Again, if this person was just spouting off as a peer, totally cool. If that's how one person wants to operate, totally cool. But if you're in charge and you're presenting something as a person of authority and you're going to say stuff like that, that's when I get upset. Because I have experienced that as a student myself. I've, I've, as a student, I've experienced instructors saying things like this. And, and then I, as a student am, am going, Oh really? And then I'm, and then later on I learned that that instructor was just spouting off and wasn't saying anything based on our profession. And they, it's just their own opinion. There's a difference between having your own opinion as an instructor, which you should couch it as such. If, if this group leader said, look, this is my own opinion. You're free to do what you want. And everyone has their own practice regarding this. But for me, I don't like the word client because prostitutes have clients and lawyers have clients. And that's just how I feel. But if you want to use the word client, go ahead. But that's not usually how it's presented. What it's usually presented is, is I, you know, the way that this patron is describing it. And from then, from that point forward as an underling, if you want to use the word client, then you automatically know that this person in authority is going to look down on you or grade you bad or evaluate you bad or ridicule you or something because they're in power. And also what happens is the group ends up following the leader because everyone wants to obey, particularly in our field. And so you end up being the minority who's oppressed by some ridiculous notion. Oh, and here's another Latin word that we don't use the same anymore. The word defecate or the Latin word defecatus used to mean to take out the dregs. So an example they give here is if you had leftover coffee grounds in coffee, then you would take out the coffee grounds from your coffee and then drink the coffee. And that would mean to defecate the coffee. So if you're defecating the coffee, you're getting rid of the coffee grounds. And of course, today, defecate means something completely different. So the leader of your group would, would say, uh, would you like me to defecate your coffee, sir, or miss? Uh, I see that you have some coffee grounds left in your coffee. Would you like me to defecate your coffee? And then you'd be like, why are you using? Well, the Latin origin, origin of the word defecate is actually to, to purify and to get rid of impurities of, within something. And then you look at your, that person and you say, you're crazy, we don't speak Latin anymore, woman. We speak, uh, we speak Australian. <laughs> well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which I alienated all the Australian listeners. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 